A great big welcome, everyone. This is the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 5, Episode Number 2. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast is a podcast that was created for the hair loss practitioner. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for patients with all different types of hair loss. Each week, I'll review a handful of different studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and give you my thoughts on just how a given study might be changing how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in every type of hair loss. Androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, trichotillomania, scarring alopecia, chemotherapy-induced hair loss. This is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy. It was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss. And it was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a potpourri of different studies. And today I'll review with you five studies that have been published in the last few months. I'll begin by an interesting study by Landau and colleagues in JAD Case Reports, a study of six patients with hair loss after receiving hyaluronic acid fillers in the temples. This is a so-called temporal lifting technique, a somewhat new cosmetic technique that was introduced to the world back in around 2016. Anywhere from a half a mil to one mil of a hyaluronic acid type filler is introduced in the temple area to increase volume in that area, which helps reduce signs of aging and provides a mild lift to the mid and lower face, and that helps with aging. But by introducing this filler, there's increased tension in that area and what runs in that area is the superficial temporal artery. And we'll look at six patients who developed hair loss after this temporal lifting technique, thought to be due to some sort of compromise of the superficial temporal artery. Patients develop hair loss about two weeks after receiving the filler, starts with pain, then proceeds to redness, and roughly two weeks later, the patient develops hair loss. We'll take a look at this really important study. We don't know how common this is, but I think it's really important for us all to know about the potential for hair loss with this technique. Then we'll take a look at a study by Garcia Rodriguez in the International Journal of Dermatology in June, a study looking at cutis vertices gyrata and its relationship to psoriasis. There are three types of cutis vertices gyrata, or CVG, primary essential, primary non-essential, and then secondary. In primary essential CVG, there's no underlying associations with any kind of disease. In primary non-essential, the patient has these ridges and folds on the scalp, but they also have some kind of neurological problem, eye problem, deafness, or chromosomal abnormality. The two of them run separate courses, meaning the neurologic disease runs its own course and the bumps and ridges on the scalp run its own course but this is primary non-essential CVG. And then we have secondary CVG, which we're going to talk about today. In secondary CVG, the patient has some sort of an issue, often on the scalp, like psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, derriere, dissecting cellulitis, and this skin disease is contributing to the ridges and folds on the scalp. If you biopsy it, you find this skin disease, and often if you treat this skin disease, you get an improvement in the ridges and folds that characterize CVG. And lo and behold, we have this case 
by Garcia Rodriguez of a patient with psoriasis, first treated with ustekinumab, then ixekizumab, and it was the change to ixekizumab which led to an improvement in the scalp psoriasis, and lo and behold, an improvement in the CVG, or the cutis vertices gyrata. And so we'll take a look at this nice study together. Then we'll look at a study by Takosh in Respiratory Medicine and Case Reports in April 2023. A fascinating case of a 71-year-old male who was in and out of hospital with respiratory problems. CT showed ground glass opacities and pericardial effusions. It was thought this patient had some sort of lung issue. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis was the presumed diagnosis. It wasn't clear what was causing this patient's respiratory problems. It was thought perhaps the patient is sensitive to bird antigens. Then it was thought that the patient was sensitive to infectious or mold agents in his CPAP machine. And then it was discovered that, aha, this patient was using oral minoxidil at 10 milligrams a day without anybody really knowing. Every time the patient came into hospital, he stopped the oral minoxidil and got better. Every time he went home, he resumed his oral minoxidil and got worse. We'll take a look at this hypersensitivity pneumonitis-like presentation. Hasn't been described before, and I think it's important for us to all be aware of the side effects of oral minoxidil. Then we'll take a look at a very nice study looking at post-traumatic stress disorder and its relationship to the development of autoimmune disease, a study by Xu in the European Archives of Psychiatry and Clinical Neuroscience, June 2023. Post-traumatic stress disorder affects about 3-4% to of North Americans every year, and we'll take a look at the criteria that are used to formally diagnose PTSD. There's been accumulating evidence suggesting that PTSD may contribute to the development of a variety of autoimmune diseases, and here we have a study of 5,000 patients with PTSD matched 1 to 4 with controls, showing a threefold increased risk of thyroiditis, threefold increased risk of lupus, and a sixfold increased risk of Sjogren's. A really nice study which reminds us that PTSD may contribute to autoimmune disease, and we'll take a look at some prior studies in the literature and try to make some sense of this very important subject. And we'll conclude with a nice study by Nicolau in Rheumatismo, July 2023, looking at a patient who developed a flare of skin disease after laser hair removal. The patient had underlying Bechet's. Bechet's disease is not a common condition in North America. Maybe five out of every 100,000 people will develop Bechet's. It's certainly more common in the Middle East and more common in parts of Asia. It's an inflammatory vasculopathy, affects veins and arteries of various sizes, and can affect many organ systems. Many patients present with oral ulcers and genital ulcers, eye issues like uveitis, sometimes neurobechets, gastrointestinal bechets. But it has this interesting skin finding, and that's called pathergy. And what pathergy means is when you traumatize the skin, when the skin is injured, it forms a bump or a pustule. And so when the skin here was traumatized with laser hair removal, guess what happened? 
the patient had a pathogy-like reaction with the formation of these red papular nodular lesions. So we'll take a look at this important concept of pathogy. I think pathogy is important to be aware of. It happens in Bechet's. It happens in other conditions like sweet syndrome, pyoderma gangrenosum. It's a condition that's very familiar to dermatologists, but I think as hair specialists, it's important to, for us to appreciate pathogy. Pathogy is different than Kebner phenomenon. The Kebner phenomenon is when the, when the skin is injured, a variety of skin issues develop, like psoriasis, like lichen planus, like vitiligo. But in pathogy, when the skin is injured, this papular nodular pustular reaction develops. And we'll take a look at this condition together. Nice study by Nicolau in the journal Rheumatismo. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So we'll begin by a study by Landau in JAD Case Reports from May 2023, titled Non-Scarring Alopecia After Temporal Lifting Technique with Dermal Fillers. Really interesting study. The authors report a case series of six patients who developed hair loss within just a few weeks of developing of receiving a dermal filler. And they were receiving this dermal filler for a cosmetic technique known as the posterior temple lifting technique. So why were they receiving dermal fillers with the posterior temple lifting technique? Well, to reverse signs of aging. So one of the signs of aging is loss of volume in the temple area. And fillers provide an option to increase volume in this area. There develops this concavity over time as we age. And fillers can increase volume to this area. And by increasing volume to this area, that provides a mild lift to the mid-face and the lower face. And that uh, helps provide a more youthful look. And so this technique for temple volumizing with fillers was published in 2016. And it was a uh, paper in Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology by Combra, which introduced to the world this temporal lifting technique. There's many ways of performing this technique. This is a technique that I'm not super aware of, but certainly I've had patients that have come in with this technique, so I've learned about it. But if you spend some time on, on YouTube, you'll see some wonderful videos of this superficial temporal lifting technique. And what you'll learn is that there's many ways to do this technique. There's many, many ways to perform this technique. And often hyaluronic acid is used, but there's uh, some practitioners that use fat grafting. There's some practitioners that use calcium hydroxyapatite. And there's different ways of doing this technique. But all in all, the most common way is to use a hyaluronic acid high G prime filler, a high viscosity filler, and introducing anywhere from a half a milliliter to a milliliter into the subdermal plane of the superficial, of the superior temple. The goal here is to introduce the filler, increase tension, and thereby provide increased volume in this area. And the overall effect of the filler is to give a lift to these soft tissues, provide volume to the temple, and increase lift to the mid-face and lower face. The risk here is compromising blood flow to the superficial temporal artery, which is found in this area. And so Landau and colleagues in JAD Case Reports provide us with a very nice paper 
reporting six patients with hair loss following this posterior temple lifting technique. I think this is a wonderful uh, report, very valuable to our field, and I thank the authors very much for providing us with this summary. They provide quite a bit of detail on the first two patients, and they provide photos of these two patients and describe the other outcomes of the other four patients. But patient one was a 61-year-old female patient treated with this posterior temple lifting technique. She had one milliliter of a hyaluronic acid filler introduced into this area. 24 hours later, she contacted the office of the physician saying she had burning pain in the right parietal area of the scalp. And as we'll come to see, this is important. First, there's symptoms. Then there's redness. Then there's hair loss. But initially, the patient has pain. Photos sent in by the patient really didn't show anything. So what you need if you're performing this technique is a high index of suspicion. The patient had an appointment in the office the next morning, 36 hours after the injection. At the time of the follow-up exam, there was a color change, what the authors call a lividoid erythematous eruption. So this color change in the right temporal and parietal areas of the scalp, and much of this color change was hidden by hair. There was minimal changes in the right upper forehead. But this astute clinician suspected that perhaps there was a vascular issue, perhaps there was some issue caused by the hyaluronic acid. And fortunately, one of the wonderful things about using this type of filler is we have the ability to reverse the effects of this filler with an enzyme known as hyaluronidase. So the clinician introduced 1,500 units of hyaluronidase in 5 milliliters of saline, injected widespread into this area, generously infiltrated the clinician reports. And the procedure was repeated three times, 1,500 units three times with a one-hour break in between. This is a lot of hyaluronidase. The goal was to get rid of the hyaluronic acid that was introduced. There was no improvement in pain after these three sessions, and the procedure was repeated after eight hours. And an additional session was performed after 24 hours. So this is a generous amount of hyaluronidase, and I think that's important. Some of these patients were initially treated with 300 units of hyaluronidase, and as we'll come to see, many of these patients were treated with a lot of hyaluronidase. And at this stage, the patient had significant relief in the pain, Ten days later, however, the patient developed scalp itching accompanied by hair shedding. There were bi-weekly platelet-rich plasma injections, but hair loss ultimately developed. Three months after, there was some regrowth that started. So what we appreciate with many of these phenomenon, whether they're telogen effluviums or antigen effluviums, is that it's pretty difficult to stop it once the initial insult to the scalp has occurred, whether that's a vascular insult or any sort of trigger of telogen effluvium or trigger of antigen effluvium. It's possible if you act quickly, of course, but the insult has already happened. So many of these treatments, like platelet-rich plasma, topical minoxidil, oral minoxidil, which we'll see were used in this study, we don't really know if they do much, but there's quite a sense of panic and you try to do everything you possibly can. But do check out this paper. You'll see this very nice 
photographic documentation. Patient one with this lividoid rash in the right parietal area, followed by significant, significant hair loss by day 21. Chad Case reports, free, freely available online. Wonderful journal, Jad Case reports, with the availability of these free papers for everyone to learn from. Patient two was a 44-year-old female patient, again injected with the temporal lifting technique. A bolus of 0.5 milliliters of hyaluronic acid was injected to each side. Similar story. Two days after the procedure, patient described headache and tenderness in the left temple. Photos sent in by the patient showed no visible abnormality. Step one is pain. Step two is redness. Step three is hair loss. So four days after the procedure, an examination performed in the office showed red areas on the scalp. The astute clinician recognized the possibility of some side effect of hyaluronic acid, injected 3,000 units of hyaluronidase. A total of 43,000 units of hyaluronidase were injected, followed by an additional 25,000 units the following day. After a second round of hyaluronidase injections, the patient had a relief of pain. Seven days later, the patient had a CT angiography looking at the, the tracing and course of the blood vessels. And what the CT angio showed is there was an absence of visualization of the left frontal branch of the superficial temporal artery. It was blocked. On day nine, despite complete normalization of the skin, skin looked completely normal again. The patient had hair shedding. And a patch of five centimeters by 15 centimeters of hair loss developed two weeks later. And four months later, the hair started to regrow. And again, patient two was one of these six patients that there was very nice photographic documentation of this side effect. This is a very valuable paper. I think it's really, really important that side effects be shared. I think that's how we learn a whole lot. I think you really become an expert in hair loss by understanding side effects. And really, expertise in hair loss is, is largely about understanding how to counsel side effects and manage side effects and deal with side effects, opposed to part of expertise being how you diagnose and treat hair loss. That certainly is a valuable part of hair loss, but it is really the understanding of what side effects are possible, what is the chance of side effects, how you manage the side effects that significant expertise in hair loss develops. And this is really a wonderful report to understand the side effects of hyaluronic acid fillers in the temple and how we manage them and how we need to be there for our patients. When a patient says, I have pain. And the doctor says, send in a picture. And the patient sends in a picture and it looks normal. One option is to say, it looks pretty normal. The second option is to realize, is there anything that can go wrong with the use of a hyaluronic acid filler in a patient who sends in a normal scalp photograph? And the answer is yes there is the possibility that there's some sort of vascular compromise causing pain and redness. And the astute physician gets the patient into the clinic as soon as possible for proper evaluation and possible reversal of this with hyaluronidase. And so there were six total patients reported by Landau and colleagues. 
And it appears that patients who go on to develop this side effect start with pain and burning, headaches, followed by redness and a bruising-like side effect. The redness can be delayed, and the skin can look fairly normal for an extended period of time. Headache can be present. One patient was thought to have zoster or shingles, but uh, pain is quite common. Immediate treatment here was with hyaluronidase, sometimes a lot of hyaluronidase, as well as painkillers, and prednisone was given in one case. The hair loss started in anywhere from 9 days after the procedure to 21 days, but in most patients it's around 14 days. And so if a patient comes into clinic, you give the hyaluronidase, a week later you phone the patient and the patient says, I'm doing, I'm doing okay, you can't be assured that they're not going to develop hair loss. Patients here were treated with various hair growth promoting agents like PRP, minoxidil, oral minoxidil, and some patients had no treatment. I think what we have to be careful of here is to conclude that these treatments do anything. We don't know that. We feel in this case of tremendous panic and worry that we need to do something. And so I think it certainly makes sense to try to do something. PRP, minoxidil, oral minoxidil, but I think we have to be careful. We don't know that this does anything. Time may be the best agent or similar to these treatments, but of course we feel like we need to do something to try to reduce the chance of hair loss. But we do not know that these treatments do anything to prevent or reduce the magnitude of hair loss. We don't have long-term study. We don't have long-term follow-up. We have reasonable follow-up in two of the six patients here, but we do not have long-term follow-up. Most follow-up here is for short duration. In one patient followed for 12 months, there's a report that most hair grew back, but there was one small area of hair loss. And the presumed type of hair loss here is a non-scarring alopecia. That, that appears pretty reasonable. Again, we don't have long-term follow-up, and in one patient with pretty good follow-up of 12 months, there's one area of hair loss remaining. Um, I don't think we can be 100% confident that the type of hair loss is a non-scarring hair loss in every patient. It certainly seems reasonable. But I think, theoretically, with severe vascular compromise, uh, there could be a scarring alopecia that develops. Now, that's just theoretical, based on what we understand from other mechanisms of vascular compromise. With this six-patient case series, it seems like it's a non-scarring alopecia. What we don't know is, does everybody get their hair back? What we don't know is, how long does it take? What we don't know is, do these treatments do anything? So the authors mention other reports in the literature of this type of complication. Most are with hyaluronic acid fillers but there are reports with fat and calcium hydroxyapatite. The mechanism of hair loss appears to be due to some sort of compromise of the superficial temporal artery. And this compromise can occur from increased external pressure, either from the filler itself, pressing on arteries, post-procedural edema that develops, so swelling of the tissues, and that's why one patient was given prednisone, but there are reports in the literature that sometimes the filler finds its way into the blood vessel, and this may contribute to a compromise of blood flow. The author nicely presents in the discussion that in one study, 
Filler material was not found in the artery in studies in the literature by ultrasound. In one study, uh, two other studies, a filler wasn't found in arteries by biopsy. But in one study of biopsies, filler was found in arteries. So there's three mechanisms of hair loss possible with these fillers. One is from compromised blood flow from the filler, pressing on arteries. One is from compromised blood flow from edema or swelling. And one is from compromised blood flow from the filler clogging the blood vessel. So all in all, a nice study by Landau and colleagues in JAD case reports of six patients developing what appears to be a non-scarring alopecia after this temporal lifting technique. I think it's important for us all to be aware of this. We don't know how common this is. Is it one in a million? Is it one in a thousand? Is it one in 10,000? Is it one in 10 million? I don't think we know, but I think we know that this is possible. The cosmetic field needs to come to determine how this is discussed with patients and how patients are counseled, and is this side effect common enough to include in uh, general counseling of side effects. But still important for us to be aware of, and important for us to be aware of patients who receive temporal fillers, who complain about pain post-procedure, need to be at least considered for the possibility of this side effect and properly evaluated. So we move on now to a study by Garcia Rodriguez in the International Journal of Dermatology in June 2023, titled Cutis Vertices Gyrata, Secondary to Scalp Psoriasis. I really like this condition. Cutis Vertices Gyrata is a condition that I see fairly often. Some patients don't even know they have Cutis Vertices Gyrata. It's where patients develop these folds and ridges on the scalp. The scalp takes on this brain-like appearance. Patients with balding are quite distressed by this because the scalp comes to have these mountains and ridges and valleys. Some patients don't know that they have this, but many patients come in with concerns about it. It was a condition that was first described in the mid-1800s. It's estimated that about 1 in 100,000 men have this condition and 1 in 400,000 women we don't understand the cause, but we realize that there's three groups of patients. And these are divided into primary essential, primary non-essential, and secondary CVG, or cutis vertices gyrata. In primary essential CVG, the patient has only these skin ridges, folds, and, and, and mountains on the scalp. There's no underlying abnormalities. It's just a skin-scalp issue. In primary non-essential CVG, there's some underlying abnormality. And that underlying abnormality runs its own course. That could be a neurologic disease, like epilepsy, schizophrenia, some developmental issue. They may have a eye disease like cataracts, blindness, strabismus. They may have hearing difficulties, they may have chromosomal abnormalities, but in primary non-essential CVG, there's some underlying abnormality that develops in a parallel manner. It's not the cause of the CVG. But in secondary CVG, the patient has some underlying skin disease or underlying endocrinopathy that is contributing to the CVG. Maybe psoriasis, Derrier disease, 
dissecting cellulitis that we've talked about in prior episodes, a whole range of conditions that may be contributing to the CVG. And if you treat those conditions, sometimes you have an improvement in the furrows and ridges seen on the scalp. And in secondary CVG, a scalp biopsy often shows the condition, not always, especially if it's due to an endocrinopathy. And if you treat the condition, as I mentioned, you often get an improvement. And that's what we have in this nice case report by Garcia Rodriguez, a nice study of a patient with psoriasis, whose psoriasis was treated and his CVG improved. And it was a 59-year-old man with a history of severe plaque psoriasis with scalp involvement. The patient had nail psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. He was initially treated with ustekinumab, Stellara, 90 milligrams every 12 weeks since January 2018. The patient noted after a recent haircut that he had this thickening of the skin in the area of the vertex. And many patients with CVG don't know they have CVG, or many patients notice that, yeah, they have this laxity or looseness of the scalp, and it has these ridges and and folds. An examination of the by the clinician showed this thickening of the skin with these ridges and furrows, and it resembled the gyri and sulci of the brain, which is what we call the cutis vertices gyrata-like appearance. Blood tests were normal. The patient had a biopsy and ultrasound, which suggested CVG. We don't necessarily always need biopsies and ultrasounds, but that completed a very nice evaluation. But in April 2019, the patient was started on ixekizumab, TALTS, 80 milligrams every four weeks because of poor control of the psoriatic arthritis. And after one year, the patient had a marked improvement in the psoriatic disease, as well as a marked improvement in the CVG. The prominent ridges and furrows diminished in their size. So a nice report of secondary CVG. A nice report reminding us that some forms of CVG respond well to treating the underlying disorders. And I think that's really important because there are many patients with CVG who improve with anti-inflammatory treatments because they have secondary CVG. And we have patients with uh, CVG because of dissecting cellulitis who improve with anti-inflammatory treatment. We have patients who improve with aggressive treatment of psoriasis and aggressive improvement of the inflammatory scalp disease. And so many patients with CVG, uh, you know, have primary non-essential CVG and primary CVG, that's correct. But there are patients who come in with red scalp, inflamed scalp, scaly scalps, and it's sometimes worthwhile to consider a biopsy to determine if you have a inflammatory scalp dermatosis that's contributing to the CVG. And it's sometimes worthwhile to have a trial of steroid injections, a trial of um, anti-inflammatory shampoos, anti-dandruff shampoos, tar shampoos, uh, steroid shampoos, or referral to a dermatologist for aggressive treatment of the inflammatory scalp disease. Because oftentimes the patient has a sort of hidden or not too apparent running under the radar inflammatory scalp disease that is hidden within the hair and is contributing to the ridges and furrows 
and they have secondary CVG. And so I really like this report. Psoriasis contributing to CVG and treatment of the psoriasis leading to an improvement of the CVG. This is secondary cutis vertices gyrata. So we move on now to a nice report by Takosh and colleagues of a new side effect of oral minoxidil. You're all well aware of possible side effects of headaches, swelling in the feet, swelling in the face, shedding, dizziness. Oh, here we have uh, another side effect, a cardiac side effect. In addition to the pleural effusions, pericardial effusions that are very, very rare, here we have a hypersensitivity pneumonitis-like side effect of oral minoxidil, and I'll walk you through this particular side effect. Published in Respiratory Medicine Case Reports, April 2023. Generally speaking, low-dose oral minoxidil, which means to which refers to oral minoxidil under five milligrams or five milligrams, side effects are not too common. There are these side effects, which I mentioned, the fluid retention, the hair shedding. But there are these cardiac side effects like pericardial effusions, cardiac tamponade, lung side effects like pleural effusions, which are reported, but fortunately aren't very common. But authors from Japan present us with hypersensitivity pneumonitis as another side effect. So this is a 71-year-old male who had a type of a cancer known as essential thrombocytosis, a cancer where platelets, blood clotting cells are increased in abundance due to this type of cancer. And he presented for medical attention because of low oxygen saturation, pericardial effusions, and a CAT scan or a CT scan imaging showing ground glass opacity. What was so remarkable in this case is every time the patient came into hospital, even without much medical intervention, the patient improved. And when the patient went home, the patient decompensated or got worse, came into hospital again, got better, went home, got worse, came into hospital, got better. And it was thought that the patient had hypersensitivity pneumonitis or a lung inflammatory condition often due to some sort of antigen, some sort of protein or infection. And it was thought that the patient had hypersensitivity pneumonitis from a bird antigen, possibly his down comforter, his blanket. Then it was thought that he had this hypersensitivity pneumonitis from some sort of contamination or mold in his CPAP machine because he had sleep apnea. And then it was discovered by chance that the patient had been using oral minoxidil without anyone knowing. So a valuable story for us to know about, it really reminds us of how important a good history is. The patient had a routine CT scan in 2021 as part of his cancer care. He had essential thrombocytosis. The CT scan showed this ground glass opacity finding, as well as other findings that were suggestive of hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is a type of lung inflammation. And when, when radiologists look at this CT scan finding, they present the clinician with a differential of what could be causing it. But one of the suggestions was there's this inflammation occurring in the lung, and the clinicians wondered about hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is lung inflammation, which sometimes occurs when people are exposed to plant proteins or animal proteins or fungal organisms or chemicals. 
The patient had some shortness of breath, but it was mild. Had a low-grade fever occasionally. The patient had this cancer diagnosis of essential thrombocytosis, also had obstructive sleep apnea and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, had some difficulties maintaining high oxygen saturations when he came into hospital. Chest auscultation or examination of the lungs with a stethoscope showed some fine crackles at the bases, and CT imaging showed this non-fibrotic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The patient was kept in hospital and improved. Didn't really have all that much of a change in his treatment plan, but his breathing improved. He had some antibody testing, and it was discovered that he had some sort of hypersensitivity to bird antigens. And it was thought that maybe the patient has some sort of allergy to birds. And so he was told to avoid birds. Avoid the down comforter that he had. And as the authors report here, they were essentially reaching for straws, as the expression goes. They were not sure with great confidence that the patient had hypersensitivity pneumonitis, but they didn't really know what else to say, but avoid birds. If you have a down comforter, Filled with feathers, get rid of it. Ten months later, the patient came back, shortness of breath again. He had been avoiding birds, avoiding his down comforter. A CT scan was done again, showed this ground glass opacity, showed a pericardial effusion now. He was given diuretics to get rid of the pericardial effusion. In hospital, his CT scan improved, his lung tests improved. Again, it wasn't clear why he was developing this appearance of ground glass opacity on CT scan. The doctors kept searching and searching. It was thought that perhaps some antigen was in his air humidifier and his CPAP machine because he had obstructive sleep apnea. It was thought that maybe there's some fungus. So he was told to get rid of his humidifier, change his CPAP tubing, and the patient went home. Developed shortness of breath again, came back to hospital again, again had a CT scan showing this ground glass opacity, and again having a pericardial effusion or fluid around the heart. And this time, fortunately, he brought in two medicines that he was using, oral minoxidil at 10 milligrams per day and finasteride, which he had obtained from the internet. These were long-term medications. Each time he came into hospital, he stopped his oral minoxidil, and his finasteride, and each time he went home, he restarted them for his hair loss. And all in all, the author suspected that it was the oral minoxidil that was contributing to the pericardial effusion or fluid around the heart and contributing to this inflammation in the lung or this hypersensitivity pneumonitis-like presentation. And he was advised to stop taking the oral minoxidil. So a really interesting case of... A new side effect of oral minoxidil, hypersensitivity pneumonitis-like side effect, which adds to our understanding of rare pericardial effusions, rare pleural effusions that can occur. Now, the dose here is higher than what we typically use in hair loss, 10 milligrams. Low-dose oral minoxidil typically refers to 5 milligrams and less. Remember, many males use 2.5, some 5. Many females use 0.25, 1.25, 2.5 milligrams of oral minoxidil. 10 milligrams is pretty unusual. I do have patients that have 
come in to see me already on 10 milligrams. So it's not impossible that there are males around the world on 10 milligrams. But I think this is a nice reminder that we need to really understand the side effects of oral minoxidil. Fortunately, most patients do extremely well. We need to counsel patients on shedding that occurs when you start, fluid in the feet, fluid around the face, dizziness, headaches, chest pain. These aren't common. We need to counsel patients on the rare possibility of palpitations. But we need to counsel patients on what to do if they have shortness of breath, what to do if they have chest pain, what to do if they have palpitations that continue, what to do if they have increased weight. I think we need to remind patients that this is generally a pretty safe medication, but if there are things that seem strange that we need to know about them as your clinicians, and if they happen acutely or suddenly that you need to seek medical attention. We've reviewed on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast last year, and I'll put references in the show notes, a very nice case report by Dr. Delova, reminding us of a, of a female patient on just 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil that developed massive fluid retention, plural, plural effusions, pericardial effusions, massive fluid retention called anasarca. And so I think we need to have in our mind that side effects can occur and to have a healthy respect for oral minoxidil. It can help many, many people with hair loss. It can change lives. But I think that if we just feel that it's a wonder drug and is a fix-all for all problems, you're going to run into problems. And I think that there was tremendous excitement that happened throughout the world in 2022 with the lay press discussing oral minoxidil. And I think that what often some of these reports in the press have done is failed to mention the potential side effects and the counseling that needs to go into oral minoxidil. Oral minoxidil is not for everybody. And I think we need to be aware of these side effects. And this sort of is a very nice reminder of the astuteness that we need to be living with when we prescribe oral minoxidil to our patients. And it's also a nice reminder that we don't always get good histories from our patients. There is a feeling in this paper, rightly so, that patients don't always tell us what they're using. Patient was hiding the fact that they were using oral minoxidil. And we're so glad they brought in their bottle. That's true. But it works both ways. That I think in challenging cases, we need to dig deeper. And in challenging cases, we need to ask, listen, you know, what medications do you use? What herbs do you use? What drugs do you take? What recreational drugs do you take? Tell me about all of this. This is confidential. I'm your physician, but I need to know. We need to take in-depth sexual histories with complicated cases. We need to go into this kind of depth with complicated cases. And I think this is just a nice reminder that when things don't make sense, that we need to dive deeper. And what I really liked about this report is the authors point out that we need to run with this possibility that this patient has a hypersensitivity pneumonitis. It doesn't seem like they're allergic to birds, but what else do we have to go on but tell the patient, avoid birds and get rid of your down comforter? We don't have anything else to go on but to tell the patient, listen, you might be allergic to a mold. Clean your CPAP machine and get rid of your humidifier in your room. It doesn't seem like this adds up, but what else do we have to go on? And so this was a really nice report of the fact that we need to dive deeper. 
hypersensitivity pneumonitis as a potential side effect of oral minoxidil. We move on now to a nice report in the European Archives of Psychiatry and Clinical Neuroscience, June 2023, titled Risk of Autoimmune Diseases After Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, a Nationwide Cohort Study. I really liked this study. It reminds us of the emerging body of data suggesting that post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD can affect our immune system and can affect our immune system permanently, such that we may have an increased risk to develop autoimmune disease. I think there's enough evidence emerging in the literature that suggests this is the case. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a psychiatric disorder that occurs in people who have experienced or witnessed significant, significant traumatic events. The DSM-5, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, has a very formal definition for what constitutes post-traumatic stress disorder. I'd encourage you to, to review that. There's a very formal definition of PTSD. PTSD affects maybe 3 to 4% of U.S. citizens and North American citizens every year, and maybe 11% prevalence lifetime. But that yearly prevalence or incidence changes in different parts of the world depending on war and famine and earthquakes and climate disaster and fires. And so uh, we need to be aware of PTSD and, and, and the definition. There's eight criteria. A patient has to have this significant stressor. There are a requirement of having an intrusion symptom. So the patient re-experiences or relives these events. There is criteria about avoidance, so the patient avoids situations and reminders. There's a fourth criteria of negative emotions, negative alterations in cognition, cognitions and a mood, and mood two criteria. There's negative thoughts or blame or memory loss or feelings of isolation or loss of interest that occur. Criteria E involves alterations in arousal or reactivity. The patient has irritability or aggression or engages in risky behaviors or hypervigilance or has difficulty sleeping or difficulty concentrating. It has to be lasting more than one month. It impairs their life in social or occupation or various aspects of their life. And it's not due to other issues like medications or substance abuse, abuse or other issues. So there's a formal criteria in the DSM for post-traumatic stress disorder. I think it's important as clinicians to be aware of, you know, what are the criteria for PTSD. But accumulating evidence suggests that PTSD influences the development of autoimmune diseases. So this was a nice study from Taiwan that set out to investigate the risk of autoimmune diseases in patients with PTSD. And so between 2002 and 2009, the authors enrolled 5,000 patients with PTSD and matched them one to four with controls who didn't have PTSD. And patients were from the National Health Insurance Database in Taiwan, a, a health database which authors have used many, many times to harness a lot of information about relationships between variables. So we'll hear a lot about this National Health Insurance Database from Taiwan many, many times. There's many, many of these great databases, which we'll talk about on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. There's these massive databases that 
clinicians and researchers can dive into to try to harness data. There's databases in Taiwan. There's these great databases in the UK. There's these great databases in the United States. There's these great health insurance databases. And so we'll talk about these many, many times because these have thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of patients. And these are important because we can get good information from these databases. So patients were followed up until December 31st, 2011, and that's when things stopped. And the authors chose to investigate several autoimmune diseases. What they found is that after adjusting for uh, confounders, patients with PTSD had a 2.26-fold increased risk of developing any autoimmune disease compared to controls. And there was a 2.7-fold increased risk of developing thyroiditis if you had PTSD, a 2.95-fold increased risk of developing lupus, and a 6.3-fold increased risk of developing Sjogren's syndrome. And what was interesting is that patients with more severe PTSD had a higher risk of developing autoimmune disease. For example, patients that accessed psychiatric clinics more often had an eight-fold increased risk of developing any autoimmune disease compared to controls. I really like this study by Sue and colleagues. It, it reminds us about this growing body of literature. Patients with PTSD indeed have an increased risk of developing autoimmune disease. And it reminds us of two important studies, one by Song in 2018 and one by Dai in 2021, that I'd like to mention because I think it's important for us to be aware of. The Song study was published in JAMA in 2018, titled Association of Stress-Related Disorders with Subsequent Autoimmune Disease. That was a retrospective cohort study which included over 100,000 patients with stress-related disorders and compared them to a million matched controls. And what the data showed is that the diagnosis of stress-related disorders was significantly associated with an increased risk of autoimmune disease. Patients with stress disorders had a 1.36-fold increased risk of developing autoimmune disease. What was interesting about that Song study is that the relative risk was more pronounced in younger patients than older patients. And so all all age groups have an increased risk of developing autoimmune disease. The younger patient groups have a particularly immune system which is having this predisposition to developing these autoimmune diseases. I think that's important information. It tells us that you know the immune system of younger individuals is different than the immune system of older individuals. Both are susceptible to the development of autoimmune diseases, but the younger patient population is even more susceptible. And what was particularly interesting in that JAMA study is that the use of SSRIs seemed to reduce the risk of autoimmune disease. And the longer you were on an SSRI, the greater you had a risk reduction. So if you were on an SSRI a year or two, you had a greater risk reduction of developing an autoimmune disease than if you were on it just several months. I'd like you to know about the study by Dye and colleagues in Psychosomatic Medicine 2021 titled Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder and the Associated Risk of Autoimmune Skin Diseases, a nationwide population-based cohort study. I'll put the reference in the show notes, as will all the references be. But the study aimed to investigate the association of PTSD with skin diseases in Taiwan. Again, a National Health Insurance Research database was mined. 9,800 patients with PTSD were compared to 39 
thousand controls. And after adjusting for confounders, there was an increased risk of skin disease. A 31-fold increased risk of lichen planus. A 16-fold increased risk of vitiligo. A 10-fold increased risk of autoimmune bullous disease. A 5-fold increased risk of alopecia areata. And a 4-fold increased risk of psoriasis. Pretty profound information. You know, patients often ask me, is there really any relationship between stress and hair loss, stress and skin diseases? Well, of course there is. I think we really can't ignore this powerful information. There's a multitude of studies that tell us that stress and the mind-body axis affects the hair, affects the skin. It affects multitudes of, of different organ systems. But we have good data. We don't have to rely on hunch or best guess or opinion. We've got all this data. And here we have data that suggests that some of the most intense stress affecting the development of PTSD affects these skin diseases, affects alopecia areata, affects psoriasis, affects lichen planus, affects thyroiditis, affects Sjogren's, and affects lupus. So I really like this study and I really like the the body of literature that's growing that reminds us that these stress disorders affect the development of autoimmunity. So finally, we conclude with a study by Nicolau in the journal Rheumatismo, July 2023, hot off the press, titled Pathergy-like Reaction Induced by Laser Hair Removal in a Patient with Bechette Disease. So what's Bechette's? What's Pathergy? Well, I'll walk you through it. Important concepts for hair specialists to understand Bechette's isn't super common in North America. Maybe five in every 100,000 patients have Bechette's in North America. That's increased to quite a higher number in the Middle East, the Mediterranean. And I think we need to know about this when patients come in with Bechette's and are asking for hair transplants and are asking for PRP and are asking for microneedling and are asking for laser hair removal because in Bechette's disease, trauma to the skin has the potential to cause skin disease. And we call that pathergy. So patients with Bechette's disease often present with ulcers in the mouth, genital ulcers, eye disease, sometimes neurologic disease, gastrointestinal disease, but they sometimes have pathergy. And pathergy means that skin injury can cause skin lesions. So Bechette's disease is this inflammatory vasculitis that can affect multiple organs in the body. Bechette's disease is one of these vasculitides that affects veins and arteries of all different sizes. And it was a syndrome described by a Turkish dermatologist, Dr. Bechette, in 1937. And Professor Bechette recognized this triad of symptoms. Oral ulcers, or recurrent aphthystomatitis, an eye disease, relapsing uveitis, and genital ulcers. And he recognized that patients often have these three diseases that go together, and that's the triad of Bechette's. The prevalence ranges from, as I mentioned, 5 in 100,000 in North America, 80 in 100,000 in Iran, to about 420 in 100,000 in Turkey. It's important to recognize that 
Bechet's can appear very different in different people. So it's better thought of as Bechet's syndrome than Bechet's disease because patient in room one with Bechet's will have a different story than patient in room two with Bechet's and then patient in room three with Bechet's. Some patients have neuro Bechet's. Some patients have gastrointestinal Bechet's. Some patients have the classic oral ulcers and genital ulcers and eye disease. But the most common symptoms are oral ulcers and genital ulcers. 97 to 99% of patients have oral ulcers. Up to 85% have genital ulcers. Up to 85% have these skin lesions, like these papular pustular skin lesions, erythema nodosum, pseudofolliculitis. Eye disease is common, anterior uveitis, posterior uveitis, or retinal vasculitis. And some patients have arthritis. About 50% or so of patients have uveitis and arthritis. But a range of symptoms can occur. As I mentioned, neurologic issues, gastrointestinal issues, thrombosis or clotting. We don't know what causes this disease. It's thought that there's genetic factors, environmental factors. Genetic factors are thought to be relevant, especially in the Middle East and Asia, where a significant proportion of patients have HLA-B51 in the so-called silk road zones extending from the Mediterranean east to Asia. HLA-B51 genetics is more common in the silk road areas. It's not so common in North America. 20-30% have HLA-B51 in North America or less. It's becoming less common. But patients often have pathergy, and as we'll see in a minute, pathergy is one of the diagnostic criteria. And pathergy refers to the development of a skin lesion, one of these papular pustular or red bumps at the site of trauma or injury. It's seen in about 50% of patients with Bechet's overall, but it depends on where in the world you live that you regarding your chance of having a pathergy phenomenon. It ranges from about 9% of patients with Bechet's in India to 71% of patients with Bechet's in China. So you can test for pathergy. And in fact, when you see a patient that you suspect has Bechet's, you often <clears throat> test for pathergy. And what you do is you ask the patient to hold out his or her forearm. And you get a sterile 20-gauge needle. And you make little skin punctures five or six of them, with a 20-gauge needle into the skin um, with a 30-degree a angle. And the purpose is to create injury. And after you make those six pokes, you draw a black circle around those pokes with your Sharpie marker, and you ask the patient to come back two days later, one day later. And you look to see if they develop a red bump or a papulopustular lesion, a pustule inside of your Sharpie marker circle. And if it's two millimeters or more, then you have a positive pathergy test. Now, not every patient with Bechet's has a positive pathergy test, and some patients have relapsing remitting course. So some patients can have a positive pathergy test in April and no positive pathergy reaction in September. So that's important to keep in mind as well. Positive pathergy occurs in Bechet's in some patients, but it doesn't occur in everyone. And it also occurs in other diseases like sweet syndrome, Crohn's disease, 
pyoderma gangrenosum, and other diseases as well, especially the spondyloarthropathies. So a positive pathogen test does not necessarily mean the patient has Bechet's disease. It's not clear why this pathogen reaction occurs, but it's thought that the keratinocytes, keratinocytes release exuberant cytokines like IL-6, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, IL-1b that promotes the development of this inflammatory papulopustular reaction. It can occur in other areas besides the skin, and you can have this pathogen-like reaction in a joint, for example, a synovitis developing after arthrocentesis. In the eye, the development of eye inflammation after eye surgery or injections into the eye. So how do we diagnose Bechet's disease? Well, there's no lab test to diagnose Bechet's. If you have HLB, HLA-B51, doesn't mean you have Bechet's. But over the years, researchers have put forth clinical criteria, and they've changed over time. And so there's international criteria that are often used now, and a score of four or more in, indicates a diagnosis of Bechet's. And you get points for different clinical findings. If you have oral ulcers, the patient gets two points. Genital ulcers, two points. Ocular lesions, anterior and posterior uveitis. Retinal vasculitis, cells in the vitreous, you get two points. Skin lesions, these erythema nodosum, papulopustular lesions, pseudofliculitis, you get one point. If you have neurologic manifestations, you get one point. Vascular manifestations, one point. And if you have positive pathology, you can also be assigned one point. And if you have a score or a four or more, it indicates Bechet's. What I'd like to review with you now is the possibility that laser hair removal can contribute to the development of a positive pathology reaction. A study in 2016 was actually one of the first to report this, a study by van der Rie Pelican in BMJ case reports, was a study from the Netherlands which reported an interesting case of a 25-year-old man who was admitted to his hospital with fever, ulcerations of the mouth, pustules on the skin, and the patient developed a pathogen-like reaction after laser hair removal and after receiving braces for teeth straightening. So two pathogen-like reactions. And here today, a brand new off, hot off the press study in Rheumatismo, this journal Rheumatismo, 2023, July, pathogen-like reaction induced by laser hair removal in a patient with Bechet disease. A 25-year-old male diagnosed with Bechet's in 2014. At that time, he presented with HLA-B51 positivity, positive family history, oral ulcers, genital ulcers, pseudofolliculitis lesions, positive pathogen test, recurrent um, uveitis. You can see that he would score much more than four points in the international criteria. He was prescribed azathioprine, 50 milligrams, colchicine, 0.5 milligrams, had good control. In April 2022, he reported new skin lesions on the thighs and the trunk three days after laser treatment. Remember, these pathogen reactions often develop within 24 to 48 hours. Now that's on, that's with patients not on immunosuppressants. This patient's on azathioprine and colchicine, and it's possible he wouldn't develop any uh, pathogen reactions, but 
three days after laser hair removal, he developed these reactions. This journal publishes free online, shares images graciously and generously with Creative Commons license. So do check it out. It's available. And you can see that these pustules on the back, on the chest, on the legs, in this patient with Bechet's disease, this article is free. The patient's azathioprine dose was increased to 75 milligrams per day and colchicine to one milligram per day. Azathioprine and colchicine are common agents to treat um, Bechet's. A multitude of immunosuppressants are used. Azathioprine and colchicine are among the more common. Steroids are used, methotrexate is used, sulfasalazine is used, uh, cyclosporin is used, methotrexate is used. Bremolast is used now, and within a very short time of increasing the dose, the patient had an improvement. So this nice report by Nicolau adds to this 2016 report by van der Rie Pelican in BMJ Case Reports and reminds us that laser hair removal is indeed a trigger of pathogy reactions in Bechet's. Pathogy can be induced by dental braces for teeth straightening. Arthrocentesis in patients with synovitis. Injection in the eye can trigger pathogy, causing uh, stimulating uveitis in a patient with Bechet's. So many different types of pathogy reactions. That's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Joining me this week and joining me in prior weeks. I appreciate so much all the support for the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We reviewed today five studies from the last few months a study by Landau in JAD case reports reminding us of six patients who developed hair loss within a few weeks of receiving hyaluronic acid fillers by the temporal lifting technique. A really, really nice report, which reminds us that this may be a complication of this cosmetic procedure, and we need to be aware of it. And increased tension in the temple can potentially compromise the superficial temporal artery. We don't know how common it is. We don't know how to prevent this. We don't know if hair loss comes back in everybody. Um, we need more studies, but thank you so much to these authors for sharing this with the world. A nice study of secondary cutis vertices gyrata in a patient with psoriasis initially started on ustekinumab, then changed to ixekizumab and had this dramatic improvement in the ridges and furrows that characterize cutis vertices gyrata. A nice study by Takosh reminding us of the possibility of hypersensitivity pneumonitis as a side effect of oral minoxidil. And we need to be aware not only of pleural effusions, pericardial effusions, tachycardia, feet swelling, uh, anasarca or fluid retention in the body, hair shedding, hair growth on the face, hair growth on the body, but we need to be aware of hypersensitivity pneumonitis as a rare side effect of oral minoxidil. Clearly not a common side effect, but one that we need to be aware of. And a nice reminder as well that when patients are going through tough times with side effects, we just don't know what's happening. We need to dive deeper into the history often. And in this case, diving deeper uh, allowed for the realization that the patient was taking oral minoxidil and probably wasn't allergic to his down comforter. And the comfy down comforter can probably come back and probably wasn't caused by molds or contamination in the humidifier or the CPAP machine. But clearly we need to keep those clean. But rather oral minoxidil was causing the side effect. 
a nice study we reviewed in the European Archives of Psychiatry and Clinical Neuroscience of the relationship between PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder and autoimmune disease, showing that PTSD can increase the risk of thyroiditis, lupus, and Sjogren's. And we did review those very nice studies in the past showing that many skin diseases can be increased by PTSD. And finally, we talked about Bechet's disease, a, a topic we don't talk a lot about in the hair world, but one that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of what Bechet's disease is and what that means to a patient who comes in to see us wanting laser hair removal, wanting hair transplantation, wanting microneedling procedures, wanting PRP. Skin trauma can induce flares of Bechet's skin disease. Pathogy reactions can sometimes induce flares of not only the skin, but other Bechet's phenomenon as well. And so it is something we need to take seriously. And no, Bechet's patients are not great candidates for PRP, hair transplantation, laser hair removal, microneedling. Are there exceptions? Yes. But that's a topic for another day. But we need to appreciate the possibility of pathogy developing in patients with Bechet's. That's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Next week is the announcement of the Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship, a long-awaited announcement of a training program, an intense 15-month-long virtual program for practitioners who want to take their skills to a whole new level and develop a whole new level of expertise in managing hair disorders. And I'll be announcing that very exciting program next week. And I will be posting that online in various venues and channels, including our Donovan Medical YouTube channel. Be sure to check that out, as well as on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. And the week after, I'll be back. It'll be the first Monday of the month of August, and we'll be reviewing a number of fascinating studies in the month of August, and we'll be announcing the Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship at that time as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. Have a great rest of the week. We'll see you again back here for another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast.